Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown, the show where we decode the unknown. The format of the show is one of my writers, in this case, Ilza. Thank you, Ilza. Has written me an episode about finding El Dorado. Simple title there. I've never read this before. That's the format of the show. We're going to explore and learn something together, hopefully. Let's jump in. The year is 1531. Diego Dort has an explorer and governor of Paria in Peru is sailing up the Orinoco River in search of the fabled lost city of El Dorado. It's a day like any other, filled with menial tasks while swatting away buzzing insects with the dark jungle looming on the shore. Suddenly a loud bang sings flocks of colorful birds swarming in panic. Chaos breaks out. A store of gunpowder is caught on fire. The men, not wanting their boat to sink, leap to action until utter disaster is averted. Brave men. If I was on a boat and it had a gunpowder store and the gunpowder store caught on fire, I'd be like, the next thing that happens is that's going to blow up. I'm just going to swim away from this boat as fast as possible and take my risks in the jungle because uh, I'd rather not get blown to pieces. The fire is doused without loss of life, and order resumes. And then at that point, I'll be like, Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I'm coming back on the boat. They'll be like, stay in the jungle, whistle, you coward. <laughs> oh, God. Not the jungle, there are tigers. The man responsible for the accident is identified and dragged before the captain to face justice. At this point, things are looking rather bleak for Juan Martinez. Allowing gunpowder to catch fire is an offense punishable by death. However, in an act of supposed kindness, instead of being immediately executed, Juan is given a canoe and sent down the river to fend for himself in the unforgiving jungle territory, steaming with hungry critters. It may have been considered an act of mercy by the crew, but considering the trials faced by the men who ventured into the wilderness in search of gold, I think a quick drop and a sudden stop uh, would have been preferable. Oh, like uh, on a hangman's noose. Do they do that on boats? Don't they just throw people into the river and be like, Arr, enjoy the crocodiles! Or more like the crocodiles will be enjoying you. However, Juan is given another chance. A small chance, true, but a chance nonetheless. Eventually, after spending some days on the river, he's found just floating along by natives. The friendly sort, not the cannibal sort, and he's taken to Manoa or El Dorado, a gleaming city of gold deep in the jungle. Oh, I see. This is, uh, this is not, this is a fable. This is not something that actually happens, because there's no giant city of gold, right? Surely not. There's not. I'd know about that. Like, I've made enough videos about history to know that if there was a giant golden jungle city somewhere, I would know about it. By pure chance, as punishment for allowing a fire, Juan finds himself in the very city hundreds of desperate men have been searching for. For months, he lives among the denizens of El Dorado, soaking up the beauty and marveling at the wealth. I love gold! Eventually, he longed for home, and the friendly natives just let him go. Just like that. He finally made his way back to civilization and told anyone who would listen about his time in the mythical Golden City. Of course, many asked him to take them to this amazing place, but alas, he could not. But you see, the native peoples were kind, they were not stupid, and they blindfolded him before taking him to their golden abode, hidden in the jungles. Is it possible that one man found the city of gold and proved all the tales true? Shockingly, not many people believe the tale of Juan Martinez. Can't imagine why. I have no idea what became of Martinez later in life. Perhaps he returned to El Dorado somehow and is still there waiting for the unbelievers to find him so that he can prove once and for all that he was telling the truth all along and that El Dorado is real. I'm starting from a very skeptical position with today's episode. He probably just went into the jungle. He ate some mushroom that he wasn't supposed to eat. He had a wild ass trip. He was like, I was in there for months. And it was like, Juan, you went missing late last afternoon. 
What are you talking about? We found you. Everything's fine, Juan. The story of El Dorado. Everyone and their golden canary have heard tales of El Dorado. The Spanish were the first to use the term El Dorado to describe the chief of the Muisca, a tribe living in the Andes region of Colombia. El Dorado literally means the gilded one. The chief would coat himself in gold dust and then wash the dust off in a lake. Of course, this meant that El Dorado eventually became a lake or a valley instead of just a man. Myths dealing with lakes containing sunken treasures and in one case, golden alligators, a personal favorite of mine, are actually quite common. <laughs> yeah, golden alligators, that's sounds like a thing that's real. However, not content with being a mere man, lake, or even a valley, El Dorado eventually became the name of a mountain covered with molten gold. But even this was not enough. How absurd do we have to get? El Dorado, being a flexible myth, realized the future was in urbanization and soon adapted once again to become a city, hidden somewhere in the jungles or the highlands of Colombia. It was a city of gold with palaces and temples made of solid gold and precious stones. Even the streets were paved with gold. The people were clothed in gold from head to toe, and they painted everything gold. Rocks, trees, themselves, whatever they could lay a brush on. According to some modern tales, the buildings, all made of gold, hovered. I have to say, the mountain covered in liquid gold was already a little bit ridiculous. If there was a mountain covered in liquid gold, gold wouldn't be that expensive. It would be like aluminium or something. Although aluminium, fascinatingly, used to be very expensive. Like, back in the day, people, as like a thing of prestige, would have aluminium plates instead of gold plates because it was before we did that electrolysis thing or whatever it is that extracts uh, a metal from an ore because you could only use like raw aluminium or whatever. I'm half remembering this tale, and so it was incredibly rare. But a fascinating tangent there, Simon. But if there was a mountain that was, like, covered in gold, gold would just be, like, worth not that much. Because it would just be super common. Yes, you heard that right. El Dorado was a place of either marvelous technology or selective gravity. But who wants a mere city if you can be an empire? So El Dorado evolved yet again, this time into a wealthy empire, because empire sounds more impressive than kingdom. Literally, a land of gold with multiple cities, lakes, and valleys. The cities of Manoa and Amagua are probably the best-known cities of this lost empire. Being a mysterious city or empire, El Dorado appears on no map because the location kept changing from Colombia to the Amazon Basin to the jungles of Guiana. El Dorado was always where those looking for her weren't. Adventurers. Hungry for gold were determined to find the city if it was the last thing they ever did. For many, it was the last thing they did ever do. Now, before we continue, there are apparently a whole lot of lost cities in South America. The Seven Cities, Petiti, the Lost City of Zed to start with. In some stories, these are just different names for El Dorado, while in other stories, they are the cities of a region called El Dorado. There are other tales where they are cities in their own right, completely independent from the myth of El Dorado. For this script, I'm only going to focus on stories about El Dorado specifically, so let's go and explore her golden streets and decipher just where this myth came from and discover some of the horrors it led to yeah this is one thing like when it's a myth you got to draw a line at some point and i know people in the comments are going to be like oh simon that you didn't look at this element of el dorado that's actually from this specific myth and it's like yo it's a centuries old myth we have to draw the line somewhere and that's what ilza has done thank you ilza thank her in the comments below rather than being like simon actually you missed this oh it's okay it's okay that's fine i, I miss a lot it's the nature of making videos that are not infinite in length <laughs> The origin of a myth. A chief covered in gold. Let's start with the golden man. Where did the tales of a chief covered in gold come from? It appears that the origin of this myth lies with the Musca people who lived on a large plateau, Cundinamarca, in the eastern range of the Andes in what is today Colombia around 600 to 1600 CE. 
when a new chieftain rose to power within the tribe. A coronation ceremony would take place at Lake Guatavita. One of the most detailed accounts of this ceremony comes from Juan Rodriguez Freires, who, in turn, heard the story from the nephew of the last ruler of the Musica people. When the chief of Musica died, his successor, usually his nephew, as the position was handed down the maternal line, had to undergo a ceremony in order to be accepted as the new chief. First, he had to spend time alone in a cave without women, salt, or daylight. I mean, I know food's bland without salt. <laughs> It's like, oh no, no salt! If this happened in a more recent time, I'm guessing he'd have to turn in his cell phone and his Game Boy. <laughs> recent time? What was the last time he used a Game Boy? After this seclusion, his first journey would be to Lake Guatavita. The chief-to-be would be covered in gold dust and set out on a reed raft accompanied by four priests, deep to adorned in feathers, gold crowns, and other shiny ornaments. The men of the tribe would gather on the shore, dressed in their best with musical instruments. Once the raft reached the center of the lake, the crowd would go silent. The successor would make his offering to the gods by casting golden figurines called tunyos and emeralds into the lake. The tribe gathered on the shore would follow suit, throwing their own offerings into the lake for the gods. Finally, two cheers from the crowd. The chief-to-be would throw himself into the lake to wash off the gold dust. The ceremony was complete, and the musica had a new chief. See this? I don't know if this is this is still a myth, I guess, like or like a ancient story or whatever. You know that place where history and mythology get confused. But this sounds totally believable. It's cool, it's a dude covering himself in gold dust, gold leaf and stuff. It's always uh, it's surprisingly not expensive. I was always like, surely that must be so expensive because gold is so expensive. But it's just so so thin that it's not actually insane. Of course, there are other versions of the tale. In one version, this ceremony would happen once a year and didn't have anything to do with anointing a new chief. The story goes that there was once a chief and a wife with a young daughter. The chief, a busy man with plenty of mistresses that he'd rather spend time with, neglected his wife, who became lonely and ended up having a relationship with another man. The chief's gonna be like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> Not hypocritical at all. The chief, simmering with jealousy, killed the lover and then proceeded to hold a feast for his wife and offered her the heart of a deer. I'm going to bet that that isn't actually the heart of a deer, is it? It's going to be the heart of her lover, which is all kinds of mythological f up. After finishing it, he informed her that it was the heart of her lover. <laughs> Who could have seen this coming? The wife, in some versions, grieving for the lover, and in others, unable to deal with the harsh punishment, took her little girl and drowned both her child and herself in the lake. The chief, heartbroken by the loss of his wife and daughter, followed the same ritual as the original tale, offering the gold and emeralds to the lake, now the kingdom of his wife and daughter, once a year. Some versions of the tale speak of a golden city and a lake built with all the offerings in uh, which the wife and daughter reside. Okay. Uh, mythology is so messed up it's always i made a video recently about like the craziest stories from mythology and i just lost it it was like one of my serious channels where i just you know present it mostly just facts and i just couldn't stop laughing i can't even remember but it was something sexual and it was just like so far up and it's like what are you up to mythology <laughs> it was like about catching sperm or something it's like oh no However, the ritual ended at least 50 years before the Spanish first arrived in South America, or when the tribe practicing this ritual was subjugated by another tribe and its ruler, Nemequine. And yes, I, I know, I know if anyone knows these languages, I'm absolutely butchering them. But there's like a million pronunciations, and I'm not going to look them all up because I don't want to be here all day and I'm just not that professional. That means it's unlikely that the ceremony was witnessed by anyone, but there is some proof that a ceremony took place. Firstly, as we'll see later, some gold was found in the lake by the conquest. Then, in 1969, farmers discovered a ceramic pot decorated with a human figure with very sharp teeth in a small cave in Pasca, south of Lake Guatavita. 
treasure. Inside the pot, they discovered a votive offering known as the Musca Raft. The raft appears to depict the ceremony as described in all of those legends that got the Spanish so excited about a golden city in the first place. The chief can be seen right in the center of his raft, his importance indicated by the size of the figure. It's much bigger than the other figures on the raft. The chief is surrounded by 12 smaller figures representing his soldiers rowing the raft and priests wearing headdresses, nose rings, and earrings carrying banners. The raft is made from a gold alloy containing around 80% gold as well as silver and copper. The Musica craftsmen and goldsmith were highly skilled when it came to their craft as their economy was based on farming, trading, salt mining, and metalwork. To the Musica people, gold and an alloy of gold, silver, and copper known as Tumbaga were highly valued for their spiritual value and their connection to the gods, especially the sun. Gold wasn't considered currency or an indication of wealth. It was used for art and as part of religious ceremonies. Colombia refuses to let the raft leave the country, so you can only view it in the Museo de Laura in Bogota, Colombia. Don't blame them, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, Rosetta Stone. It's just going to be, we're just going to borrow it, says the British Museum. I know that's not what actually happened. The world of antiquities and all this stuff is like, yeah, best, best to just keep them clasped in your hand, countries where they're found, okay? Probably for the best, unless you want the British Museum to come along and be like, whoa, we'll have that. Based on the Musca raft and the account of Freyles, I'm thinking that the first version of the tale is the most likely. However, when the conquistadors came across the story, they only heard one word, gold. They decided that a society that threw gold and emeralds into a lake as offerings must just have a lot of gold lying around, not to mention all the gold lying at the bottom of that lake. And so, the first version of El Dorado as the gilded man and the lake filled with lost treasure, was born. The Riches of Peru and Mexico So now we know where the idea of a golden man and a golden lake comes from. However, a series of unfortunate events just further confirmed the rumors of heaps of gold in the new world waiting to be discovered, giving even more color to the tales of El Dorado. The search for the golden city really began in 1492, long before anyone had actually heard of El Dorado. On the 12th of October, 1492, Columbus arrived in the Bahamas, convinced that he'd found a shorter passage to India. Oh, Columbus. <laughs> oh, no. On Saturday, the 13th of October, he first made contact with the native peoples. While I'm sure Columbus wrote extensively about his first visit to the New World, one entry into his journal is a level of foreshadowing that we writers only dream of. During this first meeting, he noticed that the locals wore pieces of jewelry. Of course, he asked about it and learned that there was a king in the south who owned, in his words, many vessels filled with gold. I'm guessing that's native speak for incredibly going to drive the Spanish round the bend wealthy. At this point, Columbus was still under the impression that it reached Asia and he immediately set off searching for Japan. However, <laughs> dude, you're really far away. I know it's like back in the day and they didn't have GPS and all of that shit. But, dude, that is really far from, like, Central America, South America. However, at every island he stopped, he asked about this immensely wealthy king with all the gold, and the natives told him to keep going. He'd find it soon. Apparently, they figured out really early how to get rid of a conqueror driven by gold. <laughs> I was exact, just thinking the exact same thing. It's like, no, no, it's not here. It's definitely further south. Carry on. <laughs> We've all seen it. <laughs> just carry on south, Columbus. Go on now. Get out of here before you give everybody diseases. Columbus finally got his wish when he discovered Hispaniola today, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, where gold was plentiful. Columbus's last expedition occurred in 1502. His first stop was at Santo Domingo, Hispaniola. There, he warned a fleet of 30 ships ready to depart for Spain of an oncoming storm. They ignored his warning, and 27 ships sank, one carrying a nugget of gold weighing 36 pounds, around 16 kilos. 
That's a lot of gold. Bet the king wasn't too thrilled about losing that one. I mean, it's a lot of gold, but it's not an outrageous amount of gold. It's probably worth about $750,000. Uh, rough, what, gold's about $50,000 a kilo in today's money? The king's pretty rich. He's probably like, oh no. Or is it? Is there more value in it being in one nugget? I don't think so. They just melt it down or turn it into sh right? Columbus continued along the south coast of Central America, collecting a tidy sum in gold as he went. He kept hearing stories about a very wealthy kingdom to the west on the Pacific shore. Of course, Columbus firmly believed these tales and spent some time looking for a strait to help him reach the western coast of Central America, but he never found it. Columbus never searched for El Dorado specifically, but once he opened the door to South America and its riches, many followed, and with them came discoveries of gold and more stories of even more gold. Of course, these stories made their way back to the Spanish court and King Ferdinand, who ordered many expeditions to conquer land and find gold, and out of the many that went, two very successful conquests really cemented the idea of enormous wealth hidden away in this new world. The first will be the conquests of Hernan Cortes. In 1518, an expedition under Juan de Grijalva landed on the coast of Mexico. The king of the Aztecs, Moctezuma II, was understandably concerned about these newcomers in his land. So he sent gifts of jewelry, precious stones, and articles fashioned from gold as gifts. Oh no, you've made a tactical error! <laughs> It's like, please go away. I'll give you some, you know, trinkets. And they're like, those are nice trinkets. I bet you got more of that sh right? If he thought this would get rid of the intruders for good, he was so wrong. Ah, in 1519, Hernan Cortes returned to Mexico with a relatively small force. Cortes had a lot going for him. He was a strong, charismatic leader. He had an interpreter, a slave girl named Malinal or Donna Marina, and the Aztecs would have been warring with their neighboring tribes for years. So when a force showed up that could defeat the Aztecs, many of the local tribes were more than willing to support the Spanish. This is why it's always a good idea to be nice to your neighbors. Smaller chance of them selling you out to the Spanish, wishing to loot your gold. The Aztec king once again offered the invaders golden gifts as they marched towards his capital, the Spanish. <laughs> it's like, please stay away, here's some more samples of how rich I am and definitely don't have anything to steal. Oh, I get why he's doing it. It's like, please... Just, it's like a bribe, but it's not going to work, because oh, no, we know what happens. The Spanish requested an audience with Moctezuma, however the king refused, so the Spanish captured Moctezuma, sacked the capital, Tenochtitlan, and proceeded to quite happily ship as much of the Aztec gold as they could off to Spain. How could we have foreseen this coming? King Ferdinand needed money for further expeditions to spread the good word and loot as much gold as he could. Subjugating continents and stealing their wealth certainly isn't cheap. Due to storms and piracy, not all of the ships made it back to Spain. In 1975, a fisherman came across what is now known as the Fisherman's Treasure, a collection of Aztec bracelets, pendants, and ornaments in the shallow waters off Punta Gorda, near Veracruz in the Mexican Gulf. I guess my next vacation will be in Veracruz in the Mexican Gulf. <laughs> yeah, good luck finding that, though. This has been known about, and you're not going to find Although, I was doing a video, and I think it was some dudes like were diving off Greece, and they just found like gold coins. On the floor because gold doesn't corrode so you could just swim down and assume it's not buried by sand or whatever you're like it's just shiny ass gold i just wonder like so those guys reported it right and it goes off to like the government of whoever and maybe they get a small share of it or however like the treasure laws work and it's like i know it's illegal obviously but can you imagine the number of people are just not alone find some gold coins or whatever and are just like yeah i know it's historically valuable but i'm just gonna put this in my suitcase and take it home come on what are most people gonna do <laughs> is that is my opinion of humanity too low are people really that honest in 1533 francisco pizarro found his own city of gold in the form of casco peru at that stage the capital of the inca people he had attempted to reach casco twice before and failed both 
both times, but finally things were going his way. Starting in Panama, he marched south with a small expedition of 180 men and 27 horses, collecting loot in the form of gold, silver, and emeralds as he went. While Pizarro collecting, <laughs> collecting loot. It's collecting sounds almost legit. It's stealing. He's stealing that. While Pizarro didn't have Cortes' charm or leadership skills, he was in a similar situation due to a civil war between the reigning Sapa Inca Atuapa and his half-brother Huasca. The country he was marching through was severely weakened. Atuapa came to meet the Spanish in a town called Cajamarca, and when invited to convert to Christianity, the Inca refused, considering himself a living god. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like, convert to our religion for the true god. He'd be like, bro, what are you talking about? True god? I'm right in front of you. I am a god! This was enough of a reason for the Spanish who thought the Inquisition was a good idea to capture the Inca. If Pizarro thought Cortes had struck it rich in Mexico, oh well, he ain't seen nothing yet. It's hard to describe just how much gold Pizarro found in Cusco. Descriptions of the treasures mention a garden in Atual Palace that contained sweet smelling herbs, fine trees, and beautiful flowers. It also contained statues and figurines in gold and silver of plants and animals such as rabbits, snakes, foxes, lizards, birds, and deer, among others. The mansions of the Inca in Cusco had bathing suites with gold and silver basins and running water using golden pipes. The kitchen served food in golden platters and golden cups. There were chests and troughs filled with gold and silver. Is this historical fact or are we in mythology section still? This seems a bit doesn't it? But I mean, totally possible. I mean, I'm sure like some like Sultan of Brunei or whatever has got some pretty pimp ass cutlery. Atalwapa, upon realizing the Spanish desire for gold, offered to buy his freedom by filling his cell of around 25 feet by 17 feet, that's 7 meters by 5 meters, with gold as high as could reach and filling an adjoining room a bit smaller with silver. Yeah, now we talked about like 10 kilos of gold or whatever it was, 15 kilos of gold earlier. Uh, a 7 by 5 meter room filled with gold is going to be like. That's going to be billions of dollars equivalent, because gold's so dense. Gold came from all over the empire via llama. It took a while, llamas aren't known for their speed, and they were pretty heavily laden with gold. But Atualapa kept his word and delivered all of the gold they were promised. The Spanish, however, did not, and Atualapa was put on trial and executed for many other things, idolatry and treason. This was a mistake. Alive, Atualapa was powerless, dead, he became a martyr, and the Spanish ended up having to fight back a revolt before being able to take control of Peru. The monarch received his share of the gold in Spain, and the volume of it actually caused the value of gold to drop a little bit in Europe, but nothing compared to what was happening in the New World. A horse was practically worth its weight in gold, not because horses were necessarily valuable, but because everyone and their horse had that much gold to spend. From the, This is definitely the mythology section, right? From the descriptions, it sounds like the Spanish found their El Dorado, so why didn't the myth stop here? Okay, there we go. According to Pizarro's scouts in the center of the city, in the temple dedicated to the sun god, the creator of the Inca people, there was a solid gold disc inlaid with precious stones, a representation of the god himself. So what's the representation of the god? How is his portrait? It's his portrait's just a disc. They also reported 14 golden mummies, the remains of previous Inca rulers. However, by the time Pizarro and his men arrived, the disc, the mummies, and probably a whole lot of other things were gone. Pizarro and his men believed that the people of Cusco used the labyrinth, the secret tunnels beneath Cusco, to remove and hide some of the most important of the treasures. And where else would they go and hide all of this gold than in the Golden City? Of El Dorado. The idea of secret tunnels in South America is another of those unsolved mystery staples. If the Hollow Earth crowd is to believe, the tunnels led to Agatha. Yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's believe the Hollow Earth crowd, or not. <laughs> However, according to our conquistadors, the tunnels led to El Dorado in the 1600s. I mean, much, much more likely than Hollow Earth, but still unlikely.
In the 1600s, a Jesuit friar claims that the entrance of the tunnels was at the fortress of Saxa Haman and led to the Temple of the Sun. Apparently, in times of war, the Inca warriors could travel from the fortress to the temple to worship without the enemy knowing. In the 17th century, a small team was sent into the tunnels to explore, but all they found were booby-trapped caves and tunnels, and in the end, only one member of the team made it back out. Oh my god, these guys are on some Indiana Jones shit. He crawled out from under the main altar in the Santo Domingo Church in Cusco, which had been built over the Temple of the Sun. Apparently, the survivor came out with an ear of corn made of solid gold. In 1814, Mateo Garcia Pumacahua, a brigadier, not only found the treasure, but decided to show it to his superiors. Being a cautious man, he blindfolded them before leading them through the mysterious tunnels to the treasures hidden away by the Incas. The officers saw large silver pumas with emeralds and bricks made out of gold and silver. For some reason, they decided to leave the treasure there instead of hauling it out, melting it down, and selling it, which was the main goal for most of history. So I'm a little skeptical about the truth of this particular tale. So, all the gold of Cusco was not enough. The Inca had retreated through the tunnels, taking the bulk of their treasure with them, for some reason leaving behind their ruler, and rebuilt their golden city, calling it El Dorado. Pizarro himself was fairly content, from what I could gather, so he never searched for El Dorado. How many conquistadors he followed, he did to discover another Tenochtitlan, or Cusco, and the wealth, fame, and good fortune that went with it, believed firmly in the tale. There was more gold to be found in the highlands, jungles, and mountains of South America, and the conquistadors that followed in the footsteps of Cortes and Pizarro we're going to find it, although we're going to die trying. Europe goes on a South American tour. Of course, once stories of gold hit the news, every conquistador wanting to strike it rich hopped the first boat to South America. We mostly associate the search for El Dorado with Spanish conquistadors, but while the Spanish were the majority, other countries, mainly Germany and England, <laughs> No surprises there. Contributed to the general manners as well. Many of these men had everything to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. They were experienced soldiers, the veterans of many, many European wars, and had little to show for a lifetime of service, so they decided to find their fortune elsewhere. Most expeditions followed the same recipe. Firstly, an influential person would come across a clue or just make one up and announce their intention to launch an expedition to go and find the gold based on this vague or downright fictional information. Hundreds of men would sign up, bringing their own armor and weapons. If you had a horse, you got a little extra loot. Everything else would be carried by natives who didn't have to sign up, they were just forced into it. <laughs> Oh my god, the past was the worst. A few expeditions were better prepared and even took some livestock instead of just hoping that they'd find some food along the way. They'd set off, usually full of optimism, and fight off insects, disease, starvation, and occasional cannibals. If they ran into natives, they would either bribe or torture information out of them. Unsurprisingly, to absolutely nobody, the natives could never point them directly to El Dorado. However, the natives did learn quickly that pointing the party in any other direction than where they were was a good way to get rid of them. <laughs> Again. This is a great. Now, this this is a much better move than being like, who was the dude who was handing out all the gold? He was like, no, 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 please go away. Please go away. Here's some gold. Here's some trinkets. Oh, you're coming closer. Here's some more gold. Please go away. You should have just been like, no gold here, but I've heard it's further south, okay? tally -o. Of course, if you could point the gold-crazed invaders towards your biggest enemy, well, all the better. After an expedition lasting anything from a few months to a couple of years, the men would return empty-handed with only a handful still alive, usually in terrible condition. You'd think that after the first few expeditions came back with nothing to show for their efforts, people would start spending their energy elsewhere. No, oh, that's not humans, though, is it? If something doesn't happen, you'd be like, oh, we just gotta try harder. Someone's gonna do it. Someone's gonna be like, you know, there's always gonna be another... 
another crack at the whip. Between 1530 and around 1650, thousands of hopefuls marched off into unmapped territory and threw themselves on the mercy of uncharted rivers. Since the pattern repeats itself so often, I'm only going to look at a few of the most noteworthy expeditions. Let's find that lake. In 1536, Gonzalo de Casada set out from Santa Marta. His expedition started out with around 700 men. Apparently, he was supposed to find a passage to Peru. However, it became a search for El Dorado instead. The expedition finally reached the Cundinamarca Plateau, where the Musca people lived in 1937, and they made sure to loot and plunder enthusiastically upon arrival. Based on the tales, they assumed all the gold must be in the lake. So in 1545, Lazaro and Hernan Perez de Casada tried to drain the lake in order to get to the gold. Wow, <laughs> bold. For some reason, they thought they could drain the lake by using a row of most likely native and unwilling men armed with buckets. Bro, what are you doing? <laughs> it's a lake. This isn't a pond, mate. And even if it was a pond, it's going to take. Can you imagine emptying a swimming pool with a bucket? It would take forever. That's insane. Even if I knew nothing about science, I'd look at a bucket and I'd look at a lake and I'd be like, well, that's a few liters. And that lake is, well, it's so big that I can't possibly calculate it. They actually did manage to drop the water level by about three meters and found some golden artifacts along the edge of the lake, but couldn't get to the center of the lake where they figured the bulk of the treasure was eagerly awaiting them. They dropped, how small was this lake? Three meters is a huge drop. I was, I, I, I just sound stupid now. Apparently, emptying a lake with buckets can work. That's ridiculous. Around the same time as the Casada expedition, so 1536, Sebastian de Benalcazar left from Peru in search of the Golden Man, supposed to be in Cundinamarca, and Nicolas Ferdinand set out from Venezuela looking for Xira, the land of riches, in the name of the German House of Vesla. They were completely unaware of each other or Casada's expedition and made their way to Kundanmarka to the Musica peoples and inevitably in 1539 they all ran into each other. In order to prevent bloodshed, the three expedition leaders agreed to go to Spain, present their claims and let the crown decide who was to be given the lands. They left their men to secure and colonize the land and set off for Spain. Benalcazar became governor of Popayán, a neighboring province. Quesada came back as the Mariscal, the equivalent to Marshal of the New Kingdom of Granada. And Federman died, so he didn't come back at all. As <laughs> is back in the day, someone's going to die. And this is like big expeditions. They're like, oh, we got to go have a meeting in Spain. Okay, so about three years later, we'll be back. <laughs> While Casada and Federman both followed vaguely the same tales of a province called Meta, Casada followed the Magdalena River and Federman followed the mountains looking for a pass. We don't actually know exactly what story Ben Alcazar was following, but they all reached the same destination. What is interesting is that three expeditions followed nothing but myth, and not even exactly the same myth, and still they managed to get to the same place. Not only that, they found gold, though not as much gold as they dreamed about. So there was some truth to the myths in El Dorado had been found, but it wasn't the city of gold they imagined, so they decided that this wasn't it. This is like the biggest recurring theme on Decoding the Unknown. So myths are always based on truth. There's no like random story that's completely made up everything has an element of truth to it and so while most of it is fictional and i used the example of like uh harry potter before there's like platform nine and three quarters right there's a platform nine there's a platform 10 at king's cross you know these are real locations and then there's a little bit of fiction thrown in there as well and there's the whole wizarding world which is obviously fiction um <laughs> but my point is you know myths are based on truth so the element of truth that pervaded all of these myths is what led them to the same place not the fact that 
there's a real city of gold. In 1580, the attention turned back to the stories of the Golden Man and Lake Guadavita when Antonio de Sepulveda made another attempt at draining the lake in search of gold. He figured that the bucket system probably wouldn't work, so instead he cut a channel in the lake in order to drain the water out that way. Unfortunately, engineering wasn't quite what it is today, so a landslide killed several workers who began to revolt and the project was abandoned. He should have tried that bucket thing. Just get more men on it, apparently. A few golden artifacts were recovered, but it didn't cover the cost of the exploration and the exploitation rights, so the project was abandoned. Not long after his death, rains filled up the lake, and the last of the remaining drainage works collapsed completely. The final attempt to drain the lake was made in 1898 by Contractors Limited. The company dug a tunnel under the lake that reached 400 meters to the middle of the lake and then used a steam pump to drain the water. Yeah, now these guys have got some proper technology. It's 1898. It's kind of impressive that they managed to, they dug under a lake to the middle and then put in a pump to drain it. Like a, a drain in a sink. That's kind of amazing, especially for 1898. If this happened in the 1970s, I'd kind of be impressed. That project took a couple of years, but by 1904 or 1909, sources differ, they ran into a little problem we call mud. The lake bed was so soft and muddy that it couldn't support any weight. Workers literally were sinking into the mud. Then, when it hardened in the sun, the lake bed became as hard as cement, making the treasure hunting an impossible task. The crew wisely decided to go get better equipment, but by the time they went back to the lake, the mud in the tunnel had also solidified and the lake had filled up again. While the company was more successful than the Spanish, for the most part, the final haul was only a small fraction of the overall cost to drain the lake in the first place, and the company filed for bankruptcy in 1929. Yeah, just draining a big-ass lake is really... That's that's some complicated shit, right? Finally, in 1965, Lake Guatavita was declared a protected area by the Colombian government, so now it's illegal to drain the lake. All the gold offered to the lake by the Musica people so long ago will remain in the realm of their gods, as it was initially intended. Let's split the party. In 1541, Gonzalo Pizarro, half-brother of Francisco Pizarro and Francisco de Orellana, headed out from Quito. The expedition was better prepared than most. They had between 220 and 340 conquistadors, 4,000 slaves, horses, llamas, as well as a whole lot of hogs and hunting dogs. After about 18 months of marching through rainforests in the rainy season, marshes, rivers, and even mountains, they all still had nothing to show for their trouble. I bet they had a lot of death to show for their trouble. <laughs> Natives were captured along the way and tortured when... Uh, they couldn't, or according to Pizarro, wouldn't give up the location of El Dorado. Oh man, that would suck. It's like, why are you being tortured? Oh, they think there's a giant city of gold. We told them. It's just stories. Where is Harry Potter's castle? By the end of the year, the expedition's situation... Uh, by Harry Potter's castle, I meant Hogwarts. I just couldn't remember the name of it. I don't know if Harry Potter has a castle. <laughs> is the canon outside of those seven books? I guess there is these days, right? Gotta make that money! By the end of the year, the expedition situation had become dire. Many were dead, and all the animals had been eaten. Things looked bleak. Fortunately, the expedition came across Delacola, a small tribal chief who told the Spanish exactly what they wanted to hear. <laughs> Let me guess. No, no, it's not here. It's just a little bit further south. Carry on. They were close to El Dorado. They just had to go down the river. There were great and wealthy tribes just down that river. I'm pretty sure Pizarro was delighted by this news and immediately ordered a boat built. Who he ordered to build this boat, I'm not really sure since it killed all the manual labor, so I can only guess that the conquistadors were boat builders as well. The party would split with half the men and supplies going downstream 
on a boat while the remainder would follow with the horses. This continued for 43 days, but no supplies or people were found. At this point, Pizarro sent his lieutenant, Francesco de Orellana, and 50 men ahead on the boat to find some supplies and return to the weary expedition. So in December 1941, Orellana's party set out. They actually did find food, but they never made it back to Pizarro's group. Instead, Orellana and his party discovered the Amazon River and followed it all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, which they eventually reached on the 26th of August, 1542. It's a long river. Jesus, that is... It's almost a year later. That's nine months later. Did they just forget about their mates? <laughs> They're like, wow, well, we got this big boat that was built out with way more of us. It's very comfortable. There's lots of food. Let's just carry on. <laughs> Let's just forget about them. They'll, I'm sure they'll be fine in the jungle with the tribes. I'm sure. Pizarro yelled treason. No but Orellana claimed that he didn't have a choice. The river had been too strong to turn back, and the men were ready to commit mutiny. I don't blame them. I'd have done the same. Yeah, I mean, also, rivers... It's a lot harder to go up the river. As for Pizarro and his men, they eventually turned around and returned to Quito, eating their dogs, horses, and eventually saddles and stirrup leather along the way. By some miracle, they made it back, reaching Quito in June. Other than discovering the Amazon River and some tales about cities in the jungle that we'll get back to later, the expedition had nothing to show for their efforts. The Madman in the Jungle one of the most brutal and probably downright insane expeditions left in 1559 under the leadership of Pedro the Ursua. Didn't we just the last one? Brutal. Didn't they take 4,000 slaves and most of them died? It's a pretty high level of brutality right there. It evolved into complete madness due to one man, Lope de Aguirre. Considering the context of all the horrors being inflicted on the native peoples at the time, leading an expedition that stands out for his cruelty in a sea of insanity is remarkable for all the wrong reasons. Oh, God. Where are we going? Lope de Aguirre arrived in Peru in 1530, which meant that he missed out on the Pizarro expedition to Casco and all the wealth that went with it, something he never really seemed to get over. The men of the Pizarro expedition were awarded with large estates and control over enslaved natives, mostly women and children. However, the abuse in this system was a bit much, even for Spain, and King Charles V sent a new viceroy to end the abuse. The landowners weren't eager to give up their control, and Aguirre sided with the crown on this one. A short war between the royalists and the rebels followed, but the royalists won the day. By 1559, a new Viceroy found himself with a whole lot of angry soldiers and no war to keep them busy. Conveniently, there was a legend of a great lost city of gold. Pedro de Asua was selected to lead the expedition, consisting of around 300 conquistadors and hundreds of Peruvian slaves. From an administrative standpoint, sending hundreds of bored and frustrated soldiers looking for a fight into the jungle to keep them busy is not a bad idea if you're Spanish. For the native peoples of the area, it's going to be a disaster. I'm not going to describe the torture inflicted on the native peoples. That's something that belongs on a different channel. Nah, something that belongs in like a book. <laughs> oh god. Suffice to say, it's a chapter in history that we should be deeply ashamed of. Asua's expedition was in trouble from the get-go. It was poorly organized, ill-prepared, and consisted mostly of resentful men being sent into the jungles to chase down a myth. Asua's lover, Inez de Atienza, traveled with the expedition, and the men soon decided that their leader was paying too much attention to her and not enough attention to his duties, which isn't great if you're leading an expedition into hostile territory. Aguirre, sensing this discontent, saw an opportunity and he took it. Aguirre collected a small group of men, and in 1561, the rebels under Aguirre stabbed their expedition leader to death. Hours after killing their expedition leader, Fernando the Guzman took over the role of general and the new leader of the expedition with Aguirre as his second in command. That's weird. 
Why wouldn't he take over? He's like, yeah, no, I led this coup and now I'm just going to let someone else be in charge of it and I'll be second in command. <laughs> okay, dude. <laughs> Do you not have goals? In order to save their own skins, the mutineers drew up a declaration of fidelity to King Philip II of Spain, claiming that the assassination was justified. Vasseur wasn't fulfilling his duties, a crime in itself, and now that he was out of the way, the expedition could finally fulfill their goal of finding and conquering El Dorado. However, Aguirre was a bit more realistic than his fellow conspirators and signed his name, Lope de Aguirre the traitor. This didn't go down well, but Aguirre stated, rightfully so, that they had killed the king's representative in the jungle, which was treason, and no document was going to save their necks. The crown of Spain showed little mercy to the mutineers and early rebellions, punishing them with death. They needed a new plan if they were going to get out of this alive, and so the kingdom of Tierra Firma was born, with Fernando de Guzman a puppet, with Aguirre pulling the strings as king. Oh, I see. <laughs> Why is he not in charge? He's like, well, I don't want to be the leader of, like, the people who rebelled, because he's going to be the first one to have his head chopped off. <laughs> He's smarter than me. This is a good plan. This would give them the authority to resist King Philip and Spain, as they were no longer Spanish subjects, according to them. Guzman wanted to continue the search for El Dorado. Aguirre wanted to return and conquer Peru, but the expedition had left a whole lot of angry natives in their wake, torturing their way through the jungle. So he knew going back the same way, probably not a brilliant idea. His plan was to head to the Atlantic, sail north towards Panama, cross Panama, and finally sail south to Lima. Guzman didn't agree to the idea, so he too was executed in 1561 by Lope de Aguirre under the pretense that he wasn't much of a king and that he too was shirking his duties as expedition leader. If that dude was like, to me, do you want to be king next? I'll be like, F no, you killed the last two kings or leaders. I'm good. Why don't you do it? Aguirre's reign of terror had dawned. Okay, so he did it. Anyone who disagreed was executed, including priests and Asua's mistresses, and anyone airing suspicion was promptly disarmed. The Peruvian slaves were simply left behind to die in the jungle. The expedition, now only 150 strong, set off down the Orinoco River towards the Atlantic to go and conquer Peru. Dude, there's 150 of you. <laughs> so what are you going to do? The first part, I guess, there's... Wasn't this how the Spanish conquistador thing worked because all the tribes were fighting each other they'd just be like hey join us on our fight against the other tribes right 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 and so they'd work together to wipe out another tribe and then like gradually they'd all just wipe each other out with the help of the conquistadors and i mean that's how they did it with so few people right is my history correct on that one? The first port of call was Margarita Island off the coast of Venezuela, from where they could raid Spanish territories. In July, Aguirre finally got to send a letter to King Philip II of Spain, informing the king of his independence from Spain. However, the end was in sight. Between disease, starvation, and a madman killing anyone he liked, a lot of men simply deserted. Yeah, and you don't have a lot of men left, mate. Aguirre made it as far as Venezuela before Spanish forces finally surrounded the town of Barquisimeto, trapping him. Oh, when it became clear that he wouldn't leave the city alive, Aguirre Aguirre stabbed his daughter, Elvira, to death, claiming that he wished to save her from the life that awaited her as the daughter of a traitor. Great guy. On October the 27th, Aguirre was shot to death and cut into quarters. The past was so original with their punishments, and the different pieces were sent to nearby towns as a warning. <laughs> Holy shit. The expedition had found nothing of value and had cut a swath of suffering across the jungle, but the reign of the madman had finally come to an end. Yeah, no, that... that that was that was brutal enough wasn't it and then the english came oh no it's not good when the english come anywhere 
The one Englishman to make this list of notable expeditions is Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was born around 1552 or 1554 and grew up near the sea in Devon. According to one more romantic source I read, he would spend his days as a boy listening to the stories of the sailors and all the marvelous adventures they had, and this awakened the desire for exploration in his little heart. <laughs> That's the romantic one. The other story is a greedy bastard who wanted to go conquering. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Raleigh's first foray towards the New World was in 1578 as part of an expedition led by his half-brother to explore North America, but the expedition never made it past the African coast. His next foray to the Americas was more administrative. He funded and organized the settlement of Roanoke Colony in North Carolina. If you like mysteries, I'm sure you've heard of this one. Yeah, we definitely must have made a video about that on Decoding the Unknown. Check it out. Long story, very short, the settlement failed, the colony vanished, and all that remained was the word Croatan carved onto a tree, and the mystery of the lost colony that will never be solved to the satisfaction of everyone. Not exactly a great start for Raleigh. In 1585, he was knighted and he became a bit of a favorite of Queen Elizabeth I. He was given the right to colonize America in return for a fifth of the gold and silver mine there. That's a 20% commission, which ain't bad. Although, the person who has the best deal there is the Queen. Like, why is the Queen? What's she done? She's just inherited some shit by blood. And now she's like, yeah, 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 you go do all the work and I'll take 80%. <laughs> There are some historians who believe that the Queen might have had a thing for Raleigh, and when she discovered that he had married Elizabeth Throckmorton, one of her ladies-in-waiting in secret, she was so angry that she had him in prison for a year and Throckmorton dismissed from court. The two remained loyal to each other, though, and eventually had two sons, Walter and Carew. Uh, Throckmorton and <laughs> Raleigh for a moment there. I was like, wait, he did with the Queen? Holy shit! But no, obviously not. I just misread that. In 1594, Raleigh first encountered the wonderful tales of El Dorado, possibly from Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa. You see, Raleigh had his finger in the pie of privateering, and Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa was taken captive by Raleigh's privateers. Raleigh believed that El Dorado was a region rather than a single city somewhere in Guiana with loads of temples and treasures. The capital of this region was the city of Manoa on the shores of Lake Perim. The emperor of El Dorado was descended from the Incas who fled after the Spanish conquest of Peru, taking a whole lot of people and, more importantly, a whole lot of treasure with them. This empire of El Dorado had more gold than any other part of Peru and cities as great as any in the Inca Empire at its height. Raleigh was determined to find this city, beat the Spanish to the gold, and finally create an English presence in the southern hemisphere that could compete with the hold that Spain already had on the Americas, and perhaps get back on the Queen's good side. <laughs> So he marries someone, and the queen had a thing for him. The queen gets pissed off, and the way he's gonna get back in her good books is by making a fucking country. Alright, dude. By 1595, he set off to South America on behalf of Queen and Country to find and claim El Dorado. On the first expedition, Raleigh landed in Trinidad and managed to capture the Spanish leader, Don Antonio de Berrio. Berrio is married to the niece of Gonzalo de Casada and had inherited the task of finding El Dorado from his uncle by marriage. Oh my god, who was Casada? He was just, ah, oh, there's so many Spanish named dudes. And I'm just like, ah, does someone? Is a bad <laughs> Like he was one of the conquistadors. Or, like he was looking for that El Dorado thing, all right? 
simple. Initially, there were talks of a peace treaty and cooperation between the Spanish and English courts, but Raleigh attacked Berrio's force and took Berrio captive, so that didn't quite work out. The English raided Berrio's stronghold at San Jose de Aronga in Trinidad, burned down whatever they could carry off, and left for Orinoco, with Berrio and his right-hand man as captives. Berrio mostly pled ignorant, though, pretending to know very little of the layout of the land. Raleigh's party traveled up the Orinoco River and eventually came across a village, Morakito, and a very helpful chieftain, Topiorari. Part of the reason why the chieftain was so helpful was the fact that Raleigh made it clear that they were enemies of the Spanish, who had now built up a solid reputation for mistreating the locals. I don't know, dude. If I was one of the locals, I'd just be like, I don't know, you guys look pretty similar, your languages sound pretty similar, especially a little bit different to the British, but like, you've got that same like European vibe. I'd be like, I don't know, this sounds like a trick. F you. <laughs> Where's the gold? It's further south. Get out of here, Englishmen. This soon became a solid technique in Raleigh's arsenal. The helpful chieftain pointed Raleigh towards a rich culture living in the mountains, which Raleigh believed had been part of the Inca culture of Peru. Well, maybe they were trying the same trick with old Raleigh. They continued on for a couple of days, but had to turn back when heavy rains made the rivers too rough to travel. Despite his determination and his belief in the tale, Raleigh came back with nothing to show for his efforts. He wrote and published a book about his expedition, though, The Discovery of Guiana. However, how accurate the book was is up for debate ah yes historical travel logs <laughs> so like just half made up half truth like harry potter some feel that many of his claims are exaggerated or just plain invented Raleigh claimed to have discovered gold mines and angel falls but there isn't enough evidence to prove that any of this is true in Raleigh's defense though this book was written more than 500 years ago about an expedition through uncharted territory while i have no doubt some of it might be exaggerated i'm not entirely convinced it's full of fiction yeah i'm just always like it's like myths some truth, some fiction. It's not like today, where everything is black and white. Like, okay, this is either fact or this is fiction. It's much less blurry uh, today. It was much more blurry in the past. Then in 1617, after being imprisoned again, this time by King James, oh no, what did he do now? <laughs> Raleigh, beloved and hated by the monarchs. He was given a second chance to find El Dorado, and he grabbed it with both hands. Of course, he was around 64 years old by this time, but that didn't stop him. And 64 is old, like 1600s? Living was hard back in the day. Even if you're rich, living was hard, because you're going to get gout and shit. Like, <laughs> it's not a fun time. And all the diseases, you get the flu, <laughs> you just die. <laughs> oh no, I stubbed my toe and got an infection. Death. This expedition, however, was even more disastrous than the first. Raleigh himself got sick and had to remain behind at base camp in Trinidad. He sent his men under command of Lawrence Chemis, his friends, down the Orinoco to find the elusive city of gold. However, the English attacked a Spanish outpost after being told specifically by King James not to do that, and Raleigh's son Walter died in the encounter. Chemis, after breaking the news to his friends and not being forgiven, committed suicide a few hours later. Raleigh returned to England one last time, not long after the death of his son. The Spanish were a little miffed about the breach of their peace treaty, and Raleigh found himself on the wrong side of the executioner's axe. He never found the city, and his obsession with El Dorado cost him his son, and then his life. Well, Raleigh, you led a life of adventure, didn't you? Finally, in 1799, Prussian scientist Alexander von Humboldt put the story to rest. He retraced the various expeditions, sailing up the Orinoco, down the Meta, and in 1801 came to the conclusion that El Dorado had been found a long time ago at Lake Guadavita, where the story first began. I just realized something. So there's this river we keep talking about called Meta, which is in the, spelt in the same way as Facebook's Meta. It's like two of the largest companies in the world, <laughs> named now after Amazon, uh, after uh, South American rivers. Amazon and Meta. Although that's not Meta's reason, but 
still isn't isn't that a fun aside <laughs> well done simon you big brain he also did some math based on what casada's expedition found when they attempted to drain the lake by buckets and concluded that there was still a lot of gold in the lake apparently he attempted to get enough interest to drain the lake yet again but nothing ever came of it as for the tale of the lost city von humboldt concluded that everyone had been hunting a phantom there was no city of gold to be found the search was over or at least it really should have been yeah no human's gonna human though people are gonna be like yeah but it's out there let's go get rich come on the modern search for el dorado you think that after von humboldt declared el dorado to be a myth and considering all the people that died in search of the city with nothing to show for it that would be the end of it and for many years it was and then inexplicably the world apparently turned stupid and suddenly the search for el dorado was back on yeah let's go find some gold it's just greedy humans gonna be greedy in 2000 anselm p rambler after much negotiation with all kinds of departments and important people got mission to explore beneath the monastery of santo domingo and look for underground zincan tunnels ground penetrating radar showed what appeared to be the entrance to a tunnel below the monastery beneath the altar of santa rosa that is a cool mystery though whatever that is I don't think it's going to go to some golden city, but I'd be like, I want to go down there and see what's down there. Now, we know that there are underground tunnels in Peru, so I'm not entirely clear how this proves the existence of an Inca tunnel specifically or El Dorado in general. The articles were a bit vague on this. Yeah. <laughs> You've got no evidence for that. Technically, the search for El Dorado is over because all the expeditions running around the jungle these days, and there are a lot of them, claim to be looking for El Gran Paititi, or just plain Paititi, depending on how posh you want to be. Now, I'll happily do a script on Petiti and the city of Zed because there are some fascinating differences. Whereas El Dorado is simply a city full of gold the Spanish were lusting after, the story of Petiti is based on the mythical Inca hero saving his people from the Spanish invaders and taking them to a refuge, Paititi. The lost city of Zed that Colonel Percy Fawcett, a land surveyor, was trying to find wasn't a golden city either. He found records of ruins in the jungle containing temples and hieroglyphs and that was what interested him however calling a cat by another name doesn't make anything other than a cat and in my opinion the search for the lost city is a search for wealth be it cultural or materialistic so at heart the search for el dorado is still going strong it just has a different name these days yeah because people will think you're insane it's like what are you doing archaeological expedition for el dorado be like all right indiana jones yeah you're not getting paid for that but it's like i'm looking for tunnels in tunnels and uh someplace called petiti <laughs> it's just a different name same thing the truth was El Dorado real? The Moisca coronation ceremony, or at least some version of it, that's the golden dew going into the lake, probably is based in fact. This explains the golden emperor, El Dorado is a lake, and even El Dorado is a valley, but what about El Dorado the city? The riches of Tenochtitlan and Cusco were immense, true, but neither were golden cities. So why were the Spanish so convinced there was an even wealthier city out there hidden? in the jungle well maybe because of all the cities in the jungle remember orellana pizarro's right-hand man who was sent to find supplies but ended up discovering the amazon river instead according to some records he described a thriving civilization along the shores of the amazon river he described sizable and densely populated villages a thriving agriculture on fertile lands with an extensive network of farms and even reported some walled cities and he wasn't the only one gasper de carjaval a dominican friar stated that he had seen sprawling towns and even monuments during an expedition in 1540. In fact, as late as 1617, Spanish explorers mentioned an extended network of raised roads connecting villages running in straight lines across a landscape. So for Alana, the good friar, were to be believed, 
there was a flourishing civilization in the jungles of South America. If it doesn't mean it's made of gold. <laughs> However, when the Spanish conquistadors came and knocking, looking for the fabulous civilization reported by Orellana, there was nothing to be found. Sure, they found a few settlements here and there, mostly hunter-gatherer tribes, but no sign of the successful agricultural society described by Orellana, and definitely no walled cities. Everyone simply came to the conclusion that Orellana was a liar. And let's be honest, that wasn't an unfair assumption. However, it does seem that everyone was wrong. Anthropologist Michael Herkenberger lived with the Kurukuru tribe in their village in the Upper Zingu region in Brazil in 1993. The first written account that refers to the Kukuru tribe, a subgroup of the Zinguanos peoples, is from 1884. However, according to the tribe's oral history, they encountered Europeans as early as 1750 in the form of slavers. The population was possibly within the tens of thousands, according to Herkenberger and his team, but between the enslavement and epidemics caused by Europeans, by the 1950s, there were as few as 500 Zinguanos left. Upon meeting this tribe, Heckenberger was both surprised and impressed by their complex social structure. It didn't make sense to him that a tribe of around 300 people would have such a hierarchical way of life. At the time, it was believed that the tribes in the Amazon were small, egalitarian societies, and most of them were semi-nomadic. However, after about two weeks, the chief of the tribe showed Heckenberger a large ditch, determined to be a moat, surrounding a village at least ten times larger than their modern-day settlements, and it wasn't the only one. They visited a few of these sites, suggesting that the Kokoro once lived in a network of villages, essentially large chiefdoms, rather than the small settlements that they occupy today. This simply wouldn't have been possible if the Amazon couldn't support large permanent societies. Herkenberger spent around 25 years mapping out the ruins of the Kukuru tribe settlements and dated the oldest to at least 1,500 years old. There are around 20 towns and villages only a few kilometers apart. Each settlement is built around a central plaza that could be around 150 meters, that's 490 feet across. These are most small villages. Some of the settlements are also surrounded by defensive ditches and fields for crops like manioc and cassava. All in all, it appears that around 50,000 people lived in this network of towns in the jungle, around 1200-1300 CE. These settlements were finally linked with roads in a grid-like pattern across the Upper Jingu Basin. A network of roads suggests a central government, and the plazas could have had a ritual administrative or political function. However, finding ruins in the jungle isn't easy. The native peoples of the Amazon didn't build with stone, and they didn't have metal. Much like many African societies, they used what they had in abundance, which was essentially earth. Earth is not the most durable building material, and jungles have a way of swallowing up everything. Weren't they discovering new buildings in the jungle by using like LIDAR and drones and stuff, like sweet or planes, and sweeping them over the jungle and using that LIDAR scanning to, to find stuff? Which I know is it's incredible. I remember that when we got that on phones a few years ago, and it's like you can just take a 3D scan of anything, <laughs> like rooms and stuff. It's amazing. For a long time, Heckenberger's claims about advanced societies and cities in the Amazon jungle weren't taken very seriously. Archaeologists argued that the soil in the Amazon was too acidic and poor in nutrients to have supported the large settlements that Heckenberger and his team claimed there were. However, new discoveries in the jungles are beginning to prove that Heckenberger was actually right all along. Using LiDAR technology, boom! Gosh, such a big brain sometimes. Scientists were able to identify the ancient ruins of urban settlements around Llanos de Moyos in the Bolivian Amazon, and the new research shows that this society does contain the kind of structures many archaeologists feel contribute to an advanced society. The research team identified 26 unique sites, 11 of which had been unknown. Two large urban centers were already known to scientists, but the survey was finally able to confirm their size. Landavar was 315 hectares, that's 3.15 square kilometers, and 
Katoka was 147 hectares, so 1.47 square kilometers. This might not sound very big to us, but while most of the big Mesoamerican cultures, Inca, Ma, Aztec, understood the concept of the wheel, they didn't use it in practice, so odds are the smaller societies probably didn't use it either. Both settlements were surrounded by successive rings of moats and rampart fortifications and contained large earth platform buildings, some built in a U-shape. Just go back there a second. They invented the wheel, but they didn't use it. It's like, nah, it's not for us. <laughs> we just like lift and shit. <laughs> Why? I'm sure there's a good reason. Conical pyramids over 70 feet, that's around 20 meters, built on artificial terraces around 6 meters or 19 feet, confirm that these were established permanent settlements. Roads connect the two large settlements to smaller villages and hamlets, and archaeologists also discovered a striped pattern which turned out to be all that remains of raised fields that cover thousands of square kilometers. Alongside the raised fields were canals which would have allowed the farmers to have some control over irrigation. These fields could have sustained a permanent settlement with thousands of people. The settlements were apparently abandoned around 1400 CE before the Europeans arrived, and the reason is unclear, though one possibility could be a drought. And towns were not the only thing the native peoples created. Geoglyphs have been discovered in the Acre site in Brazil, and by 2009, archaeologists found that these geoglyphs were spread out over hundreds of kilometers of forest. Some of these glyphs are at least 2,000 years old. This wasn't the work of a single nomadic tribe. This is a complex society, which according to archaeologists, was still going strong until shortly after the arrival of the Europeans. In March 2018, satellite imagery of the Apa Tavares River Basin in Brazil identified 81 different settlements ranging in size from tiny villages to a town of 20 hectares surrounded by ditches and connected by roads. If you put all of these finds together, it shows that the entire southern Amazon was occupied by a complex society building advanced structures from around 1250 to 1500. The cities oh, are very different from what we in the West are used to. One archaeologist rather poetically described what sounded a bit like elves from a fantasy novel, a society that wove their cities out of the forests around them and, instead of crops, focused on fish and trees. However, there's still the problem of the soil that doesn't contain enough nutrients to sustain crops. I mean, yeah, but they obviously found a way around it because all of those elevated fields, they're not just like, oh yeah, well, we built the fields and then we found out the crops didn't work. It's like they'd figure it out and then it would expand, right? They must have come up with something. Archaeologist Bill Woods has found a number of prehistoric sites along Brazil's Tapoias River, and there is one thing all these sites have in common. Terra Preta. Despite being all green and lush, rainforests and jungles aren't well suited to farming. However, Terra Preta is a dark loam soil that could very well change everything. It's not natural. It's artificial. It was made from waste like fish bones and seed, burned to produce charcoal. It can remain fertile for millennia without adding any extra minerals to the soil. Studies have found that Terra Preta contains twice as much black carbon as other soils. This black carbon comes from a process called pyrolysis, which is basically burning with little oxygen. Today, Brazilian farmers dig it out of the Amazon and sell it to other farmers because it's so fertile. They then leave the soil to rest, and many years later, the soil is still in the same condition it was when the last time it was dug up. Basically, how I understand it, and I might be wrong because I'm not a scientist, is the soil is essentially regenerating. Who would have thought we'd discover the Doctor Who of soil in the Amazon? Based on the quantity of soil that's been found, some scientists believe that around 1490, so 30 years before Cortes marched into the Aztec capital, there could have been as many as 8 million people living in the Amazon, though some place the number as high as 10 million. It's crazy that people were like, nah, this dude's wrong. And it's like, wait, <laughs> actually, 
actually, and they're using this magical soil. The same type of soil has been found along the route Orellana took when he claimed to have seen fully established, densely populated towns and fertile farms. According to Bill Peterson, an archaeologist for the University of Vermont, Orellana's tale is becoming more plausible. But if there was a thriving society in the jungle, what happens in the few years between Orellana passing through and the arrival of the next batch of gold-hungry conquistadors? Well, Orellana happens. It's unlikely that Orellana and his party remained on their boat the entire journey down the river. Oh no, they went into the villages and they killed people or gave them diseases and that wiped out everyone in the jungle. And that's why... <laughs> so they'd be like, there's loads of people in there. And they come back, it's like, they're all gone. And you killed them. Oh my god. Well, I don't know if that's actually what happened. I guess we're out to find out. They would have needed food and fresh waters. They quite possibly stopped and gathered supplies, probably either trading with the natives or just robbing them. Along with a lust for gold, a whole new religion, and a new approach to cuisine, the Spanish brought something else with them. Disease. Yes, the people of the New World had never encountered diseases like smallpox, influenza, and measles. If just one person in Orellana's party was carrying any of these diseases, they could have passed it to the natives, where it would have spread like wildfire. While it's possible that Orellana exaggerated what he saw, it appears that the cities he described weren't the hallucinations of a starving man fighting off disease or the complete fabrication of a man accused of treason. I couldn't find any link between the stories of El Dorado and the cities described by Orellana specifically, but I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that many a conquistador believed one of these cities hidden in the jungle or is there lost El Dorado? I have to say, just a little comment here, is these are always my favorite part of these episodes where it's like, yeah, okay, so we look about El Dorado and the myth and all of this stuff and I'm just so fascinated where all these myths come from because that's where the real interesting history is. Like whether it's, you know, the, the man, the golden man in the lake and how that spirals into a myth. It's just one dude painting himself in gold and going for a swim and then it's like, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm golden city. And this is another one where it's like, we explore this topic of the Golden City and then we actually end up learning about this crazy culture with 10 million people living in the jungle that no one thought was real for ages, which is cool. Conclusion The first European to stumble across a llama in the New World described it as a big sheep. That seems pretty accurate. <laughs> to me, this one description is the European invasion of South America in a nutshell. Oh God, I should have finished reading the sentence. It's like, yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> he's exactly the shit i'd do oh god or well, not me but like my country's past the europeans arrived on a continent filled with marvels that they never encountered before llamas chocolate tobacco and more gold than they could comprehend however instead of reveling in the marvels of the new world taking in the sights going on a little tour they immediately set about imposing their own ideas of government religion and civilization on a group of people that in my opinion were far more civilized than the invaders honestly we're talking about a civilization that had chocolate and 3500 different varieties of potato Imagine what Samwise Gamgee could do with 3,500 different varieties of potato. Oh, well, who is Samwise Gamgee? Is this some reference like Star Wars or something that I don't know? <laughs> or Lord of the Rings? He sounds Lord of the Ringsy, doesn't he? Samwise. But instead of seeing the wonder, the Europeans only saw the gold, and the tale of El Dorado evolved and grew along with the greed of the conquerors. The more they had, the more they wanted. El Dorado became the final prize, a land of wealth, an empire of pure gold. As for the mystery of El Dorado, I think we're looking at the wrong mystery. The European conquerors believed in this mythical kingdom so fervently that they ended up getting lost in the jungles, forced to eat worms, grass, roots, lizards, and according to some tales, each other, or fighting off mosquitoes, crocodiles, cannibals, diseases, and the occasional hungry jaguar. Many expeditions returned to civilization, with only a handful of conquistadors left, often leaving their native slaves in the jungle to die, and sometimes wearing animal skins and carrying rusted weapons. And still, 
they persisted. I think the bigger mystery here is, what were they smoking? When I started researching the story of El Dorado, I was expecting something along the lines of the script I wrote on Atlantis. However, the search for El Dorado is much darker, and honestly, it's not a chapter in Western history that anyone should be proud of. It's true that South America and the Amazon River was mapped in record time, and later searches for El Dorado did lead to some interesting discoveries like Machu Picchu, but these are all things that would have been done and found eventually. So here I feel the need to disagree with all the articles I read that concluded with, yes, it was horrible, but at least some good came of it. The horrors inflicted on the native population in the name of Christianity, civilization, and gold, and the number of lives lost was too high a price. No city of gold is worth that much suffering. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, it was also, the motivations were really shitty because they just wanted greedy gold and to steal shit. So, whatever. This has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. If you're listening as a show, uh, as a podcast, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, like, subscribe. And I'll see you next time.